0: Welcome to today's webinar compiled and produced by the team at biznews.com all of our webinars are interactive we encourage you to pose questions to our guests the more challenging the better and the earlier you get the questions in the better the chance of having them answered the recording of this webinar will be available later today on the biznews.com channel on youtube well so much for the end uh, introduction and a warm welcome to our two guests today, Nick Hudson and Alan Whiteside. Both of them are very well known in the business community. Alan, Alan has been writing a blog uh, that we have published many for many weeks already about COVID-19. Nick Hudson is uh, a, a regular contributor and in fact he has also been one of those featured in the Alec Hogg show. So uh, both of you well known to our community. Uh, gents, Today, we're going to talk about what we've termed the great COVID-19 debate. It is an experiment. It's the first time we've done anything like this. Uh, We are taking our usual Monday webinar, which is usually focused on investment. But given that COVID-19 is so critical to the whole investment scenario right now, we like to get both sides of the story. Just by way of of background Alan. Um, we'll start with you because you've got the, uh, the OBE. Uh, w- what is an OBE for, for those of us here in South Africa? Obviously you, you were born, as you can see from the slide there, uh, born in, in Kenya, uh, educated in Swaziland. Uh, was that at Waterford?
1: Yes, at Waterford, yes. Yeah.
0: And an OBE sounds, sounds uh, pretty important
1: it's a british order of chivalry which stands for other buggers efforts so you get awarded <laughs> it for what other people do No, that's, that's 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 what was what my friends all say it stands for the order of the british empire uh it is uh there are various grades of order this is well below being knighted or anything like that but there are three effective orders uh that people like us would expect to get, one is the uh, commander of the British Empire, CBE, order of the British Empire, OBE, uh, member of the British Empire, which is MBE. So yes, I was awarded that by the uh, British government for my work on HIV and AIDS and health work generally.
0: And Nick uh, Hudson is uh, from, uh, Alan lives in, in the UK, in Norwich. Uh, Nick lives in Cape Town and he is an actuary so on the other side of the fence i guess one could say as far as this is concerned Nick we know all about you on biz news but uh, from your perspective uh, the thing that you've or the name that you've made in the public here in south africa is by an organization called panda where did that all start
2: that all started uh, around a glass of wine in about march um, four friends from different disciplines looking at the, the epidemic and scratching, scratching our heads at why things were going the way they were. And it quickly grew. We now stand at 100 plus members, scientists from all over the world, big advisory board with some of the leading lights in epidemiology and public health and infectious
0: disease. So it's yeah, it's been a very wild ride Alec, a very wild ride. And Alan is not a member of Panda. Not yet. Who knows? Okay.
1: <laughs> I could be, and equally as Nick could also sign up to the uh, John Snow um, initiative. I think the point I'll, about I'll, science I'll is we are meant to. Get
0: <laughs> Sorry, Alan?
1: I said the point about science is we are meant to converse, and when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do?
0: I agree. Fabulous. Well, gents, I'm going to go off screen now because my job really is to give you uh, the ability to answer questions. And, but before we, we start that, and we have a number of questions that have already come through from the business community, uh, Stuart Lohman, who is our general manager, will just explain uh, to our community how exactly they can participate, Stu. Excellent.
1: Thanks, Alec, and welcome, Nick and Alan. I just quickly, uh, we didn't do an audio check. If we can just check, there's a little high five button on the control panel. If you can hear my voice, I see that coming through already and see Nick and Alan on screen. That's great. Lovely to see. Um, as Alec mentioned, it's very conversational, the webinars we host. Um, there's little questions question mark on that same control panel. If you put your questions there, in there, Alec can pass them on as we run through the debate. But all good this side, Alec.
0: Yeah, so it's pretty simple. As Stu says, there's a little question mark. Click on that and type in your question. Uh, I will not have your surname. I'll just use your first name so that you know uh, that it's your question that's being asked. It also helps with anonymity. Uh, We have found through our various webinars over the years that people don't actually want their full name. Uh, They feel they can be a little bit more aggressive, perhaps, in their questioning if they only uh, are able to put their first name. Unless you like us to identify you fully, that's also fine. Okay, gents, before we go to the first of many questions, which already exist there, I'd like you to set out your stall, if you would. Alan. maybe you can go first to bat. Uh, A little while ago, when uh, I interviewed you, you were not impressed with uh, the way that the anti-lockdown lobby uh, has been positioning itself. Uh, Just give us your your view on COVID-19 as it stands at the moment, and more specifically on lockdowns.
1: Okay, so I have to make something of a slight apology to Nick, but we must have a robust discussion. I do speak off the top of my head when I'm speaking in these events, and if I offended you, I might need to apologize. I'm not sure, we'll have to work that out. Um, Not necessary. The uh, situation where where, where I came from, and nick i i seen you on screen for the for the first time i think you're probably not that dissimilar in age to me i would put you in your early 50s and so i think you probably also well remember the uh the shit that we went through with the aids epidemic uh in the with the Tabo mbeki so my first reaction when i i saw what you were doing and and this is what i apologize for was to think that oh my god here we have another Um, unhelpful uh, debate going on. Now, I think the debate has become unhelpful because it's become polarized, and I hope that you and I talking today will unpolarize that to some extent, because I'm not certain we are in full disagreement on a number of issues. Um, So where I come from is, uh, I was sitting in my office in Norwich in January, watching this epidemic starting to spread around the world. And I had had, uh, a uh, communication with a friend of mine which i'm now quite ashamed in which they'd said is this something we should worry about and i'd said no it isn't something we should worry about um and uh, actually I, I was completely wrong uh and then we just watched the epidemic spreading here in the uk we saw how rapidly it spread in northern uh, italy and then of course in the united states now just another thing which i think i should make clear to you and your guests is that By and large, we tend to not know very much about what's going on in other countries unless we specifically go looking for it. Because in my opinion, the media in each country tends to focus on that country and that country alone. It's a bit like, uh, I think it was Tolstoy who said, every happy family is the same. Every unhappy family is unique. Uh, Every epidemic is the same in where it's being controlled, in every country where it's not being controlled. It is unique so I think it's it's very much um, uh, that situation around the world and I mean I'd be very interested Nick to hear about what you think is going on in the United States for example where I think it's looking quite catastrophic here in the UK I will talk about that we have uh, seen rapid rising in infections but on the other hand we've seen a a very clear measure of uh, managing to keep uh, numbers out of hospital so Where I am is I think that uh, we need a range of public health interventions. I certainly believe that lockdowns were exactly the right thing to do at the beginning of the epidemic when the amount of knowledge we had was so minuscule that uh, it was a good public health response. Um, My concern is we are now trying to uh, crush the nut with a sledgehammer and I totally agree with the idea that we have to have nuanced responses. I think South Africa is in that stage. Uh, we in Britain are not, and it's a real problem. So that's what basically what I'd say. I'd say lockdowns, yes, but they need to be nuanced. Not lockdowns in the beginning. I have no problem with what was done then because we just simply didn't know.
0: Professor Alan Whiteside setting out his stall. And Nick Hudson, from your perspective?
2: Alec, I think the thing that surprised me the most in the reading that I've done since this whole story started is the comprehensive admonitions against lockdowns in the pre-COVID scientific le- literature. Um, whether you were looking at the World Health Organization, the CDC, or any number of epidemiological journals, they were all resoundingly and comprehensively against the idea of general lockdowns. and The most surprising thing for me has been the extent to which pre-COVID science has been thrown out, left, right and centre. Panda's perspective is that lockdown is a cure that's much worse than the disease in the first place. And that from the beginning in this story, the analysis conducted by the various public health institutions has has consistently failed to take a holistic approach that acknowledges the profound harms caused by general lockdowns. And in the second place, uh, to to Alan Whiteside's point, um, we in South Africa in particular failed to look at the data as it emerged from the northern hemisphere epidemics. And that data very clearly showed that the anticipated benefits of lockdown in terms of their impact on the epidemiological curves was nowhere to be found. And I, I will cite now, uh, this, this week, uh, a further paper, um, basically confirming the finding that we had in May. Um, uh, Jean, 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 Jean-Louis Toussaint, the French uh, epidemiologist, and his co-authors have found exactly the same thing that we discovered, that there's no relationship between the stringency of a country's lockdown efforts and its epidemic curve. And that was visible. If the modelers who had been anticipating these massive impacts had been paying attention, instead of running around in their ant farms, um, they would have seen this in the data and recommended that against lockdown in South Africa. So our view is, you know, even if you want to cut politicians some slack with respect to the first lockdown, because they were, after all, facing intense pressure, largely driven by propaganda launched by um, other countries' governments and the Chinese government in particular. They were under intense pressure to lock down. So you can sort of understand why they did it. But the advisors to government have no excuse, the scientific advisors. It was all there in plain plain sight. And so we, we have, in this country, locked down and stayed locked down. And in doing so, gone against all pre-COVID science and against all the emerging data in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. And I think this will, as a result, go down in history as the greatest failing ever in public health policy, uh, and the tragic consequences of it will be with us for years.
0: Thank you, Nick. From here onwards, I'd like you... Apologies, Alan. Uh, From here onwards, I'd like you to just uh, jump in as is, we don't need to be too polite. This is a debate. I've got lots of questions to pose to you. You can answer them as and how you want to, but Alan, you wanted to pick up.
1: So I would ask you one question, Nick. Do you think the Wuhan lockdown was appropriate? No,
0: No. I I don't think
1: lockdowns... Sorry? I said I asked you two quick questions. That's the first one. Was the Wuhan lockdown appropriate? No. What would you have done? So,
2: I would have followed pre COVID science and not locked down and taken steps. So, so, the first thing is it became visible very, very quickly that there was a sharply graduated age differential in mortality from this disease. And it had been known for more than a decade. Um, people who model uh, epidemics and have have known and pointed out, including, I might add, one of the signatories of the John Snow Memorandum, that um, general lockdowns are actually specifically contraindicated in the case of uh, sharply graduated mortality. They actually are expected to lead to an increase in deaths. And there is some sign in the data that that is indeed what has happened. The countries with the longest and severest lockdowns have the worst age-based mortality in the world. And so I would certainly not have done a general lockdown. Um, I think focused protection is the, the way to go. It's a, it's a, it's a mortality-minimizing strategy, both from a COVID perspective and from a holistic perspective. So it reduces the, the second-order effects um, to a minimum, and it reduces COVID mortality to a minimum. So I would have gone with focused protection. And we said that right from the beginning in our first paper. We said we ought to do what we can to protect the frail and the elderly and those who are at at the vulnerable who are at risk to this disease and encourage everybody to get on with their normal lives uh, to the greatest extent possible. And I believe that that would have led to a minimization of COVID mortality and a minimization of second order effects, which are much greater than the COVID mortality.
1: I totally agree with you on that. So if I may just finish with that second question, um, which is uh, why did governments leap in and lock down to the extent they did. I,
2: I get I get shouted at for talking about Chinese propaganda, but I think as time goes by, it becomes clearer and clearer that there was an intense social media effort, an intense lobbying effort by um, the Chinese government to actually, I think, respond to what was embarrassing footage of people being welded into their apartments and Um, stories about people starving to death because they were not allowed to set foot outside of their households. They launched a a, a face-saving propaganda campaign in true communist style. Um, The social media footprint of that campaign was massive. Uh, We've seen evidence of government leaders having been contacted by the Chinese and by various foundations. Uh, The head of the World Health Organization was basically um, so that's the Director General Tedros, who was basically a Chinese uh, appointment to the World Health Organization. And he came out from the beginning, supporting this, um, this ludicrous strategy uh, that absolutely tore up the rulebook. The World Health Organization, own, its own rulebook for respiratory vi- vi- uh, virus pandemics was updated as late as November 2019 and specifically ruled out lockdowns. So, you know, I think the, the political interference here has been intense. Um, basically, all of the, the science rule book has been torn up. And I think that the other thing that's relevant, as Giesecke pointed out, is once you start a lockdown, what's your exit me- mechanism? It's very difficult. And it's, a, you know, I, I would hope that in the fullness of time, we will actually see constitutional amendments being made in countries to prohibit this from ever happening again.
0: Nick, would you like to pose a couple of quick questions to Alan before we go to our community?
2: Yes, um, I, I would, wouldn't mind posing one. Um, I have seen repeatedly this idea that uh, the, the, the Great Barrington Declaration somehow represents a lettered rip strategy because it entertains an endpoint of. Uh, her-
1: so, repeat that. It represents a what?
2: A let it rip strategy. Right. Um, and you know to me this is a, a gross misrepresentation because all, all, um, all strategies have as their inevitable endpoint herd immunity. Whether we are talking about general lockdowns or focus protection or vaccination, the only place this you get to uh, an a, a, a unravelling of the epidemic curve is by virtue of there being some herd immunity in whichever population you're looking at. And I would like to understand why um, so many members and so many signatories of the uh, John Snow Memorandum have, uh, instead of addressing the the strong sensible points made by the advocates of the uh, Great Barrington Declaration, instead chosen to misrepresent it and talk about it as a let it rip uh, kind of some kind of trade-off uh, strategy that's being proposed. Do, do you well, have before, any insight? I think why well, that's the case? there's
1: a combination of things that went on there. Uh, first of all, um, you know, you did not do yourselves a good service with the wording in the uh, strategy. You could have phrased things a little bit better um, uh, because the way it comes across is as something of a let it rip strategy the sort of thing that the Swedes would pick up and say, let's go with it. So I don't think it's an issue with the policies in the thing. I think it's an issue with the advocacy. And that's where I would have to say scientists are extraordinarily bad. You know, they put out ideas and the world thinks of them as this is the point which people are making at this point and it doesn't ever change. So I think it was a public relations failure on your part. Uh,
0: Gerardus' question, he says, are all the doctors and nurses in the hard-hit countries also faking the COVID-19 epidemic?
2: Uh, It's a strange question to ask. I don't think, well, certainly, I know Alan doesn't think that the epidemic's been faked, and I certainly don't think the epidemic's been faked. So I I just don't find a question. Yeah, there's no question to answer there, Alec.
0: Uh, Greg's question says, not sure if Nick or Allen read the article published by the Scientists Collective uh, in the Daily Maverick today. They state, quote, CDC currently estimates that COVID in the U.S. has a 0.65 percent infection fatality rate. That is six times the flu fatality rate. And 0.65 percent of the South African population is 390,000. They then refer to the excess deaths. These scientists appear to be very credible. What is going on? Who do we believe? I, t- I can tell you right now, Alec.
2: Yeah, please. You do not believe them. That was a scurrilous article and I was highly disappointed given the names who are on that article. In the first place, it's, it's completely, whatever you think the infection fatality rate is in the United States, it's completely inappropriate in the context of a disease with sharply, with, with sharply age graduated mortality to map that onto South Africa. That is a scurrilous, scurrilous effort. They should hang their heads in shame, all of them. The, <clears throat> the second thing is, the very the very organization that they reference as authoritative, which I, I also found astonishing given the number of policy blunders that have been made at the hands of the World Health Organization, that very, that very agency has published a paper by one of the uh, associates of the great Barrington signatories, um, of uh, John Ioannidis, and his conclusion is that the, the infection fatality rate is um, a fraction of that. And in the United States, we're talking in worldwide, in Western Europe, you know. So they've, they've picked one data point which we can't even find a reference to. They've inappropriately applied it to a much younger country. I just, I, I actually, I, I went through the roof. I mean, I've said complimentary things about some of those scientists at various points because I felt they were putting a little bit of a handbrake on the hysteria. But I actually have lost it at this point. They all need to hang their heads in shame. Alan?
1: Well, I think, you know, as, as, as Nick said, you can't just take one data point and uh, make an argument from it. Uh, does it seem right that there is a 0.65% uh, what do they say, mortality rate?
2: Yeah, infection that's fatality rate.
1: Obvious. I mean, that's entirely reasonable, but you can't have a, a numerator without a denominator. It's, it's a what? Old people? Probably higher than that in old people. Much higher. Uh, population-wide? That seems feasible. But the question they fail to ask is, does it matter?
2: I couldn't agree more, Alan. Um, this, this continual focus on what the infection fatality rate is, as if that justifies policy or, or, or determines what is optimal, has mystified me from the start. You know, if we if we were expecting Um, 10,000 deaths or 20,000 deaths or 100,000 deaths in South Africa, why should that affect the policy? You know, we we should be on trying to uh, look for damage minimization policies. And I just don't see how lockdown was ever uh, uh, correlated to minimizing damage. I just really don't. And and in light of the then existing data and science, um, certainly now.
1: Yeah, the one place where it is important is how we manage Hospital demand.
0: Um,
1: We do need to know what's coming down the line in terms of the number of people who are going to need hospital admission, ventilators, or uh, uh, oxygen. So that is quite important to know. And and if you remember back to the AIDS epidemic, we did make projections, which were used. And uh, you know, when you do a scenario, uh, it's a scenario, and you can have, and it's a range of possibilities. It's it's not Mm. the answer. And quite a lot of Agreed. modeling be done as, well, what people fail to understand is that modeling is quite often uh, a best guess, but it's also an advocacy tool. If I tell you how bad, it, if I tell you Cape Town's going to be underwater in five years, you might do something more. It's not, mm. but you know, that's how we, we, we put pressure on, on uh, policy makers.
0: Uh, Joseph, comments. Can Joseph's I, can I question understand? here is, do, no. you can, of course. Sorry, Alec. Yeah, the,
2: the disappointing thing for me in this has, has been you know, we sat there in May in the, um, the Department of Health's modeling symposium. We explained that the reason their models were going to be wrong with certainty was that they were ignoring features of the epidemics of other countries that were now, you know, unavoidably uh, uh, evident, um, in particular. They were assuming 100% susceptibility of the population, which was clearly not the case. They were assuming fatality rates that were mapped from developed countries with much older um, populations. And they were also ignoring the way in which the epidemic peaked and the age-differentiated mortality. And so their models were spitting out grotesquely over estimated values. peaks much further out and right until you know August you had um, old uh, SLIM, uh, Professor Abdul Karim, uh, predicting an October peak for the South African epidemic, uh, when it had already peaked, you know, and um, it, it, so they were way off base in these models. We sat there and told them in their own symposium, we did the same thing to the team that produced the Actuarial Society model. None of them listened. It We just couldn't believe it. And so we had these massive Uh, estimates produced, and along with those estimates came forecasts for resource utilization. What happens? Hundreds of millions, billions of rands squandered, producing field hospitals which were never occupied.
1: Now, interestingly enough, the Nightingale hospitals, which we didn't occupy in April and May here, are probably going to be used in November and December, because we've got a really serious uptick at the moment.
2: We, okay, I'd, I'd, I'd be very interested to talk about Alex. the UK uptick. I'd be very interested to talk about the UK uptick, but I, I don't want to because I think, I think there's a huge uh, medical legal fraud going on there that leads me to believe that something else will be the case. But maybe we should get back to Alex's questions. Okay.
0: Alex. From Joseph, he says Hi, Nick and Alan. Please could you discuss whether the test for COVID, I believe it's called the PCR test, is being done with additional circles? and is therefore overstating the number of cases of COVID and therefore we aren't comparing apples with apples when we compare the number of cases with those of other viruses.
1: I have no idea what he means.
2: I think I know what's being spoken about there. I think he is a typo. He's probably talking about the cycle threshold on the PCR test. And that's a very good question to be asking, Alec. Um, First of all, are cases being overstated? Again, it's a question of the rule book having been torn up. In any prior epidemic, you would register a case if a person presented with with symptoms. And then, you know, if you ran a test that confirmed that the person had this disease and not another one, you would then count that as a case. That basic principle of medicine has been um, spurned. And we've had this ridiculous practice of taking a test that's not even really appropriate for um, diagnostic purposes. And anybody who triggers a positive, with with or without symptoms, gets thrown and encountered as a, as a case. And it's been a large part of the hysteria and the panic that has gone into producing such bad public health policies. The the specific question that is a joke uh, asks about. Um, he he's he's onto something there. Um, with these tests, they involve taking um, a. a uh, a sample and amplifying certain components of that sample to try to find the the genetic material of the virus the, the virus's rna and each amplification cycle is a factor of 2 so by the time you're up to 40 cycles you're at a trillion times amplification and at that point a couple of things happen you can trigger a positive for as what's known as a subclinical case so this is somebody who's not capable of infecting anybody and is not capable of generating the disease. In other words, basically, their immune system has regulated the infection and there's no risk posed to them or anybody else. So that's the first problem. It's the live dead problem um, or the the threshold problem. And the second problem is that any contamination that's happened along the way um, is now amplified and you can start triggering positives based on lab handling errors. And when you take uh, a lab that is used to conducting a few hundred tests a day and start throwing tens of thousands of tests at them, you, the, the scope for that kind of problem becomes greater and greater. And so what you see, for example, in the UK at the moment, is there's an absolute epidemic of false positives. And we've demonstrated this, you know, every which way till Sunday. Um, in, in, in both the case curves and the death curves, there are, there are now grotesque misrepresentations going on. And I think this is a problem in South Africa as well. I'm not too sure of the extent of it because we've we've only been able to get anecdotal information. But there are definitely some labs who are running these tests on inappropriate basis.
1: Alan? Um I totally agree with you on case curves because again we have a numerator denominator issue, uh, added to which we have a great variation in the quality of tests. I mean the antigen antibody etc etc but I would say and I'd love your comment on this Nick that there is so much talk now about tests being a way out of this the idea that if you have two tests a week and both are negative then you can carry on with a normal life you can have a test before you go to a sporting event etc etc I don't know what your view is on this but this is what Matt Hancock and his band of buffoons who run our system are suggesting we might uh, have as a way forward is rapid tests. I know that in certain uh, airports in America, they test you before you get on a plane. Uh, I don't agree with you about death, sir. So I think we uh, death is very binary. I mean, we may have difficulties about attributing cause, but mm. death is a binary event. You're either dead or you're alive. So I think that where we can see changes in uh, mortality, that is a real change. Now, cause may be a bit more difficult to attribute, but we have certainly seen a rise in uh, deaths in um, in England over the last little while, a significant rise. Not up to the levels that it was a while ago, but it, there has been a significant increase. And indeed in Sweden as well.
2: Yeah, well, I'm gonna, I mean, I agree with you on the buffoon's comment. The idea of testing everybody twice a week is crazy. This virus is gonna, it's already an endemic seasonal virus in the UK and to be running around doing that kind of thing in response to an endemic seasonal the respiratory virus just makes no sense whatsoever. It will represent a a fundamental um, abridgment, curtailment of human rights, and I I hope that the UK comes to its senses soon. But just just to your point about the deaths, and if I I did believe that the the deaths curve in the UK was accurate, I would have no hesitation agreeing with you, Alan. But we've we've been through into the the, um, compartmentalised death data in the last couple of weeks, and this is now, you know, we, we, we've put that out in, uh, in, in various uh, podcasts um, over the last couple of weeks, and what we discovered was the following. There is negative excess mortality for respiratory virus deaths in, in the UK at the moment. There's negative excess hospital mortality in the UK at the moment. Where there is positive excess mortality is in home deaths. Those deaths are not coronavirus deaths. They are heart attacks. They are strokes. They are deaths occurring because those people are being denied access to normal medical services. So, what how do we then reconcile that with the UK official deaths curve? What's happening is people who are dying from other causes. How can we tell that there are other causes? Well, because the signature, the actuarial signatures on those deaths is um, inconsistent with coronavirus the gender and age mix of those deaths is consistent with normal death patterns in the united kingdom so they've got an epidemic of testing in the hospitals and they're recording as coronavirus deaths ordinary hospital deaths that have nothing to do with coronavirus it is abundantly clear from the data it's a medical legal fraud and i think it's going to blow up and i'm surprised it hasn't already blown up because people are jumping on the bandwagon of this and realizing what's going on You've seen Michael Eden stepping out and talking. You've seen uh, Dr. Claire Craig, fellow of the World College of Pathologists, speaking out recently. And of course, their message is suppressed by the British government, but I don't, I, the truth will come out. There's been a scandalous fraud there.
0: Bringing it back home to South Africa, Lisa asks, she says, given that 40% of South African households have a grandparent living with them and many in very poor settings, i.e. several people living under one roof, sharing rooms, et how does Nick envisage the shielding of the elderly as described in the uh, GBD? I think it's a great Barrington declaration to be implemented realistically here.
2: Okay, it's a very good question. Thank you, Lisa. The, and I think let's just start. Uh, again, where, where's our starting point? Okay, our starting point is that everybody gets equivalent shielding. So whether you unlock down or you lock down, what that does is it It shifts the burden on to the elderly, okay? If you are doing, if you're not doing an an attempt to protect them on a relative basis, whether you agree lockdowns have an effect or not is irrelevant, okay? Because all you're doing is changing the timing of death then. You're just delaying the inevitable. If you want to protect the elderly, you have to differentially protect them and allow the disease to move through the rest of the population. What you want to happen is you want to reach herd immunity with a few as few of the vulnerable as possible in the exposed group. Okay, so our starting point, the, the as bad as it gets scenario, is everybody's treated the same, whether it's under no lockdown or under general lockdown. How do we improve from there? And agreed, it's not straightforward. But the kind of ideas that we've been proposing since April were as follows. We suggested that um, you should, instead of, you know, you've got all these empty hotels now because you've shut down the, the, the travel economy. Um, In the event that an old person wants to be uh, removed from a household where somebody else is ill, for example, then you you could use those. We suggested tripling the state old age age pension um, for the period of the epidemic, so those people could afford to take measures to remove themselves from, from danger. We suggested depopulating old age homes, taking people from old age homes who are um, not in an extremely failed condition if they become sick from coronavirus, housing them in the families, in younger families, you know, because the younger families are just, the, the risk to them posed by COVID is just negligible. And so these were the kinds of ideas we had. In developed countries, you can do things like make online shopping more available or you can have shopping, special shopping hours for older people or vulnerable people where they don't have to come into contact with the rest of the community. You know, we've got a list of about 20 of such ideas and I think you've got uh, a, a, a rough idea of the feel of it. Now, would those be uh, completely successful? No, of course not. Uh, contagious respiratory virus is one of the hardest things in the world to contain. But we failed to make the effort. We just went with this flat structure that didn't differentiate uh, with respect to risk. And as a result, we, we in, the, in the phrase that we like to use from one of our the modelers in our team, we put the old people at the front of the bus. We needed them to be at the back of the bus.
1: Mm. Interestingly enough, in the UK, another group that was identified as very uh, vulnerable were the homeless. And indeed, the government here did make a decision to put them into the Premier Inns and the Holiday Inns and all the other hotels that were standing empty uh, during the uh, first yeah. uh, round of this virus. And that was a really good thing to do. Unfortunately, that was then. Now. They're not, and we're coming up to winter. So we put them in the hotels in spring and early summer, and now as we enter into what I firmly believe is a second wave, we are not putting them into the hotels, and they're out in the streets and sleeping rough, and as you say, Nick, so terribly, terribly vulnerable to a uh, a virus. I I think there's one other thing which we need to bring into this discussion, um, and that is the concept of, A lot of our interventions uh, which we put in place and we say, oh, we're going to save lives, actually, in the medical sense, we're not really saving lives, we're simply postponing deaths. And I think actuaries understand this far more than the general Mm. public. And I have seen this uh, with great uh, clarity with my uh, students in Canada uh, when I was showing them the global burden of disease data which you all know well, which is produced out mm-hmm. of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation uh, in uh, Seattle. And anybody can access this Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. And there you can show the cause of death by age group. And I ended one class by showing my students the cause of death by age for Canadians over 70. And I said to them, so, OK, guys, so this is how people die if they're over seventy. And they looked at it and they could see that Mm -hmm. ischemic heart disease, strokes were the were the major causes of death. Said, okay, well that's how it does happen. How would you like it to happen? What would you like to see there?
2: (laughs) It's a very good question. Yes, I I, I completely get your line of reasoning and and, and what I think what you're touching on or, or maybe alluding to is the syndemic nature of um of the coronavirus pandemic. That's in so many cases, what's happening is there's an underlying primary health problem. And and this year, it happens to be coronavirus that is the the grim reaper in respect of those problems. But there's a grim reaper every year. Um, This one just, you know, went through a little stronger, a little faster. Um, But I think your point is excellent. And it's so, we have struggled for months to try and express that without sounding callous. Um, because it's it you know it 's almost as if we 've um, taken the approach of trying to want death to disappear and and that 's not a realistic way to approach health policy um, you know wh- one of the things for me that was so disappointing is in 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 respiratory viruses, the effect of temporary health changes can be relevant um, if you are in bad shape from by virtue of having uh, being, being recently ill or having poor diet or, um, you know, any, any number of things that can cause your, your, you to be in a less healthy than normal position, you expose yourself to a more severe disease course. And, and I can't prove this statistically, but I have an abiding intuition that so much could have been done. Vitamins, uh, diet, exercise and outdoors. You know, these things could have been, in, encouraging those things could have had a much more beneficial impact than lockdown ever stood to, to. In fact, if you think about it, what's the worst thing to do to people, particularly if they have dark skins and they live in the, in the Western Cape winter? What's the, where's the worst thing to put them? Inside, where they're not getting a, their daily vitamin D, Would seem like a very bad place to be. And I worried about this. We, we've got a couple of researchers who are, who are big on the vitamin D story. No, no. Uh, look, vitamin D is not a contentious theory. The, the, what's contentious is the effect size. I will I'll, I'll admit that that's something that is still an open question in science, but I did worry about the effect of taking people and shoving them indoors and telling them to stay there for the middle of winter. That didn't seem like a, a good thing to do, and I wonder how many people have died as a result. Um, it is deeply uh, vexing to me that 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 kind of step wasn't thought about, and that that kind of consequence wasn't thought about.
0: Nick, Alan, we have, we of have dozens of questions uh, okay, from fine. our community. So I'd, I'd really like to to uh, we only have fifteen minutes left. So you've you've well. you've given us some fantastic background and and insights, but I'd love you just to focus on these questions as uh, and, and to give as many of them airing as we can to keep it uh, rather concise. Here's one from David. He says, the explosion in the USA seems to be the result of the lack of lockdown and people ignoring the mask and social distancing. People need to be directed, and surely lockdown is one way to stifle the virus. Quick response, Chance? No,
2: no to everything. First of all, be, be aware of the electioneering Story. Uh, the U.S. The U.S. and Europe are, are not really different in terms of how bad the situation has been. Uh, neither lockdowns nor mask mandates show any sign of working. So, absolutely not. We don't. We don't. We can't take those as our public policy uh, um, items if you want to actually produce an impact. Um, so, just be very careful. There was no question that the Biden-Trump story. Um, Led to an, an overstatement of the severity of what's gone in, on in the United States. It's substantively not different from Europe. And um, I think people overall overestimate the, res- the, the role in which that, that policy has uh, played. The virus does what the virus will do in communities that have the fe- features of aging, obesity, and high prevalence of comorbidities. Those are the three main drivers. Um, and you're seeing that play out wherever you look.
0: Gavin says, apparently the Great Barrington Declaration is part-funded by right-wing American billionaire Charles Koch, and the signatories on there are fake. Much is written about this. Why are we still referring to a few unverified scientists? Nick, I guess it's for you.
2: Yeah, the Great Barrington Declaration, I think at last count, has 10 times as many signatories as the John Snow memorandum. Um, this business about it being funded by right-wingers is nonsense. The the venue where it was signed was the the base of the American Institute of Economic Research, which leans to the right, but I mean it's irrelevant. The the science and where the document was signed is, is, you know, to focus on that is to actually admit that you don't have good arguments against the case. Um, So, you know, I would reject uh, the assertion that the, the I mean, the scientists' names are there, and yes, did a few scurrilous people run on and sign under, you know, Mickey Mouse and Snooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo? Yes, that happened, but I mean, it's not this it's not the bulk of the signatures. You can see there, there are just thousands of recognizable names, and big names in science. You know, it, it's really interesting, because a lot of those people sign that document, despite taking great personal risk in doing so, because they are going against the the perspectives of their institutions when a John Snow memorandum sign signatory signs up he's taking no risk because that's the prevailing uh, kind of mood in, in in their government institutions and a lot of the universities and that counts you've got to think about that when a person who's who who, who takes a position and that position is at personal risk you've got to think about the meaning of that
0: Alan, a question from Richard. He says, why do the media always quote cases when they're actually referring to positive test numbers? Tests don't make cases. Cases have an illness. It is pure fear-mongering. For political reasons, he questions.
1: I think so. And I think we saw that with AIDS in the early years, um, which with more reason, by the way, because you recover from COVID, uh, you don't recover from HIV and AIDS. But yes, numbers are political and people will... talk about numbers in order to get resources or to get what they want. Uh, I think anybody who assumes that numbers are not political is naive beyond belief. Um, just to pick up on what uh, um, uh, Nick just said, uh, I have in front of me both the uh, Great Barrington Declaration and the uh, John Snow Memorandum, and neither are more than two pages long, and I would urge you all, our listeners today, to read them. Agreed. Okay, it's more than half an hour.
0: Excellent. Dennis. inform yourself. Uh, Dennis says, uh, can Nick explain how second waves fit into the statistical model that he has used to predict the deaths in South Africa with great accuracy to date
2: So so we don't believe that there will be um, a second wave per se you know and, and let's just be clear. people are using the second wave concept to frighten people to say it's going there's another wave coming that's going to be as bad as the first. We've always rejected that as a likelihood. It would be at odds with all prior epidemics. There is some contention that there was a second wave in the 1918 Spanish flu, but it's really ropey evidence. Since then, this hasn't been observed. And so what we expect to see is there will be a a seasonal surge as this virus becomes endemic and joins all the other seasonal endemic respiratory viruses. Um, It's not exclusively a winter thing. So in temperate regions, it's winter. But in your tropical regions, it depends on local factors. When is the monsoon season or the hurricane season, that kind of thing. It's, it's very local, the factors that affect it. But respiratory viruses from influenza to rhinovirus, adenovirus, coronaviruses, influenza, all have these, see, the seasonal pattern, and this one will behave no different. The other coronaviruses have it as well. So there will be little seasonal surges. And there's, there will be no reason to act any differently from how we've acted in the past with respect to influenza and adenovirus and so on. Which is to say, we, we take sensible precautions if you're sick, stay at home, wash your hands, you know. But do we need to lock down and shut down international travel and destroy businesses and livelihoods and run around with masks on? No, we need to do none of those things.
0: Dion wants to ask, perhaps would, for you, I would Alan. I
1: agree with Nick on the masks. I think there's sufficient evidence to suggest that they are protective for people who are infected and breathing out the virus. They are less protective for people who are uninfected and breathing in the virus. But I would argue that masks have an important role to play in the public health armata- armamentarium uh, for, uh, for, for prevention. And, but I, and then I would also agree with everything else he said.
0: Dion asks, he says, so why is the media not presenting a much more balanced view of the epidemic along the lines of Panda and maybe now even Alan Whiteside? Alan, you want to take that one?
1: Um, It depends on which media, doesn't it? Hmm. I mean, where I sit in England, uh, I could pick up the Sun newspaper or I could pick up the Guardian. And the coverage in both of those uh, medias is, is entirely different. Or I could look at Fox news or I could look at CNN or CBC. And again, I don't, I like the pandemic. This isn't a, a, a monolithic media. There are different medias and some of them are more analytical than others. I mean, a story of everybody went home went to work today and came home safely. Isn't something that's going to sell newspapers. Newspapers are looking for bad news. This pandemic is something which has caught the headlines.
0: Norman asks, so with the greatest of respect to Nick Hudson, and you know that means exactly the opposite, (laughs) correlation does not equal causation. He is a number cruncher and not an epidemiologist. In my view, he seeks trends in numbers, then goes out and finds justifications for his prognostications. Unlike the average epidemiologist, he has zero skin in the game. His approach is like the bunch of nitwit analysts who concocted this conspiracy theory around Jacob Zuma and his ex-wife, of course, Tlamini Zuma, that they'd formulated her rise to the ANC presidency at the Nasrec conference three decades earlier. And they justify this hypothesis by cobbling together a series of apparently connected events which have occurred in the last 30 years. It is possible in hindsight to assemble a convincing argument for a hypothesis which seems plausible but is little other than coincidental. Nick?
2: Well, it's hard to see what specific things are being referred to there, but uh, just a couple of points. Uh, I'm, I'm not the epidemiologist in our team, but we are, our team is stocked full of scientists from all walks that are relevant to this discussion. Epidemiologists, modelers, virologists, geneticists, immunologists, we've got them all. So, uh, yes, I'm an actuary and I don't have the expertise in all of those fields, but I have access to those scientists and I'm reporting what they say, okay? So it's a bit unfair to expect me to command all of those. A huge problem, by the way, in this whole process is that there have only been epidemiologists in government's advisory areas, and those guys are very bad at understanding immune systems. That's why they made the mistake of assuming 100% susceptibility, which has never been seen in respiratory viruses. So, you know, there's a problem right there. The epidemiologist should not be making decisions about immunology. I've got an immunologist who sat there in, in April explaining to us how T cells work and why cellular immunity is likely to be a thing and so on. So that's why we didn't make that mistake and that's why our forecasts from May were accurate. And you, you can tell me, you know, that's the thing that you should be looking at. What did we say in May? We, we, we published a chart. That chart is now 4% out. How did we get it right? by studying all elements of the the equation and looking at the international information. The point about correlation and causality is correct, but the points we've been making are largely about lack of correlation. So, when we say that lockdown stringency is not associated with death rates in countries, after controlling for any number of things, that that emphatically does deny a causal relation between the, um, the lockdown stringency and life-saving okay it's not a two-way street so correlation does not apply imply causality but a lack of correlation does imply a lack of causality and that's an extremely important scientific uh, concept to get right
0: Guy asks appreciate comments from both Alan and Nick on the following the media narratives are leaning towards inoculating the whole population to curb COVID However, why inoculate 100% of the population when the mortality rate is less than 0.1%, Alan?
1: Well, exactly right. Um, I would suggest that uh, what we're going to see, and we should see it within the next month, a rollout of inoculations which will be uh, very structured and it will go to the people who are at greatest risk first. I think the people who should get it, providing providing that these vaccinations still go through the processes and are shown To be safe and effective I would say health workers then the elderly and then you can rank it ramp it down the uh, the, the scale I would say that there is a real need to get as many people as possible because that's as Nick said how you get herd immunity and I will speak as someone who as a kid in Swaziland in 1961 had measles that developed into encephalitis if I had measles two years later I wouldn't have had measles because the vaccinations were out there. So I do believe vaccination is a really fundamental public health. And I think people have a responsibility to get vaccinated if it's safe and effective.
2: Yeah, my children are vaccinated. I think vaccinations are one of the greatest inventions uh, of science. I do register some concern with the haste at which these uh, trials are being conducted and the enormous economic vested interests. Uh, Also, I I share your viewers' question uh, or or concern with uh, this rush to vaccinate healthy people. I mean, the very interesting feature of these trials that the results have been released is, you know, this point about the age graduated risk. They only tested the vaccines on healthy young people, and they couldn't find anybody who actually got sick. So, you know, they got 100 people out of 44,000 in the Pfizer trial, and that's telling you That's painting a picture about this virus, right? It's not a significant risk to young, healthy people. And so I'm very concerned. How do we establish safety when the prevalence rates are so long in the group, are low, the prevalence rates of the disease are so low in the group that you're analyzing? I would like to see tests done on the vulnerable. And that's an ethically fraught situation because they can be killed by those tests. So we need to see how they're going to roll out those um, tests of the vaccine on vulnerable people because they, I agree with Alan, that's where the emphasis should be. I, I think it'll be some months, maybe even years, before we can reasonably reach a conclusion about the, 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 tra- the attractiveness of vaccinating young, healthy people. I'm, I'm not sure that that question is going to be answered very soon at all.
0: David adds to that, and I think it's, uh, it's well, our second last question, because we've come to the end of our time just about. Uh, there is a strong suggestion that the young are not at the level of COVID risk as the elderly. What are the COVID-19 statistics behind this assumption?
1: Well, well I a think, again, we're down to cases. We're down to identifying real cases in the young. I mean, the other thing is it's entirely possible that you have uh, – because the tests look for – antibodies it's entirely possible that there are other uh, measures in the body that take care of the virus and t helper cells might be in, in uh, interrupting the course of the the virus uh, before before we even get to the antibody stage so i think we do need to be aware that um young people won't won't show uh, signs to to the same extent does it repeat the question again
0: the the question um Sorry, I've moved on to the, to the last one. Uh, it's, uh, there's a strong suggestion that the young are not at the level of COVID risk as the elderly. What are the COVID-19 statistics behind this assumption?
1: Well, it's basically the, not very good. I mean, we know that a lot of elderly people get it because they present, but young people who get it probably aren't presenting.
2: Yeah, so the, the the infection fatality rate where and, and Alan's right, it's it's based on um serology studies, which are in other words, you know, are only looking at you're only counting in the denominator the people who've had a severe enough infection to provoke an antibody response. But based on the serology studies, the fatality rate differential between the very old and the very young is a factor of a thousand. Yes, there you go.
0: <laughs> yeah. and from the so.
2: University of Cambridge. Yes. So, yes. so the, so the stats much less quite risky, wrong. yeah, much less risky than the flu for for young people, and it's fascinating. Uh, and I, and I don't, I see we running out of time, but I would love to have spoken about the, the the most recent research on why this is the case, because it's different from the flu, right? And neonatals and and infants. Are are at risk of the flu and they die every year from the flu, and it's been a mystery to us why aren't they being killed by coronavirus? But that question has been answered in some papers that have been published just even in the last few days, Uh, and it's fascinating and it's a lovely story. Like I mean, I'm I'm, we we for me I've been so happy that this we didn't have to have this uh, this this horrible business of you know six month old kids dying from the disease and so on. It's just not been a feature here mercifully. and yeah, now we know the science, but I won't go into it now. We haven't got time.
0: Alan, thanks for sending, for putting that up. The, uh, Gavin has the uh, last question and then there's a, f- uh, a comment that I'll, we'll end off with. Uh, he says, we're sitting in Europe experiencing a second wave. How is this explained? There are some quite hard lockdowns. How do you ignore this? Well,
2: Alan? The, the, you know, the first thing is that your lockdowns don't work. So just ignore them. Okay, so they have no bearing on what the second wave is doing. The second thing is look at the excess mortality. The excess mortality all over Europe is extremely moderate, and that's different from the first wave. What's happening now, as I've said, is that you are attributing deaths to coronavirus, which are simply not coronavirus deaths. We've seen that at a granular level, blown apart that story in the UK. The same is happening in Europe. It's going to take us longer to get to the bottom of it because the data is not as good but they've got an endemic situation in Western, Southern and Northern Europe. Eastern Europe's different. They're still having their first wave. So you need to to differentiate Eastern Europe from the rest of Europe. But what's happening in in Western Europe, I think there are two countries out of 26 in Europe that have positive excess mortality at the moment. Sorry, that was true like on Friday, okay? So let's just put it in context. Don't listen to the scaremongering press. Look at the facts. None of those countries should be locking
1: down.
0: Norman responds
1: Nick, by saying, thank you
2: for mortality data. Nick? Nick, excess mortality data, uh, the Economist. No, 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 not at all. No, go, we go directly to the source, the Euromomo uh, study. The Economist has been a little bit devious in some of the ways it presents these things. So uh, we, we actually, I'm, I'm very disappointed with the way the Economist and the Financial Times have performed during this epidemic. They've been part of Team Panic, really. And uh, so no, we go to the Euromomo source. And the UK has much better data. I mean, I'm sitting here picking on the UK, uh, which is a bit unfair, really, in a sense. The reason I'm picking on them is because they expose the information and you can see deaths at home, deaths in hospitals, respiratory virus deaths, deaths by age, deaths by gender. That kind of granular, fine-grained information is not available for Belgium or Italy, you know, or Spain. Spain has terrible data.
0: Um, So, Yeah. Norman came back to say thank you for your response Nick, I need to correct your assertion that the team advising government on the pandemic, it, does inc- it includes epidemiologists, yes, but it also includes a number of infectious diseases experts. And I'm, I'm going to close off here with a comment from Joseph, uh, he says I found this debate extremely enlightening and that the differences between the two points of view is actually very narrow. Thank you for hosting this discussion, as it is so enlightening to have these discussions during a time like this. Thank you, Joseph. Well, uh, gents, uh, Alan and uh, and Nick, uh, I guess some were expecting fireworks. There weren't really that many fireworks, but there was a heck of a lot of understanding and appreciation and a way that we can better acquaint ourselves on what is happening and why it's happening and whether we should be swallowing everything that we are being fed. Just to help those members of the business community who are both watching live, and we have a significant sized audience, or those who are going to be watching the recording of this uh, discussion, where is a good place to start getting information and acquainting yourself with the reality rather than what you've referred to a few times on scaremongering? Do you want to start off with that, Nick? Well our
2: website is a good place to start, if I may punt it, www.pandata.org. Um, it's, not all, it, it's mostly our, our, our own material but we do reference other places that we, we think are reliable. Um, and the, Carl Hennigan's the, the, the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford is also extremely reliable. Unfortunately I can't actually tell you many more than that because almost all the other sites are on the wrong side of the story. Um, I, I know I've, I've probably offended somebody in, in that process uh, you know later tonight I'll kick myself for not having mentioned somebody but and Alec you know just to your point here I, I would especially like to thank Alan for coming on here and engaging it's my opinion that if we'd been having this kind of engagement from the get-go instead of having this this very arrogant approach to you're not the experts we don't discuss with you we're the experts kind of approach of the Official uh, health people, we would we would have had much better policy in this country and a much better outcome. And it, I, it's it's late, but I am overjoyed to have an opportunity to actually engage with somebody like Alan and to have a, a respectful, mature debate. It's it's long overdue. Congratulations to you to actually succeeding in getting it put together. Many of us have tried.
0: Professor Whiteside? Last point, uh, apart from your blog, which we do publish on BizNews, any other uh, areas that we should be looking at to acquaint ourselves on the facts?
1: I find the John Hopkins website to be useful because it allows you to delve into the data and pull it up and down, Uh, and that's certainly where I started. Maybe that's because that's where I started looking at data, and now I need to look at other websites. We become so quickly in uh, in tunnel visioned in looking at that and i've noted down what you said um i i do think alex uh two things very quickly first of all um i think this conversation needs to continue and i would be very happy to carry on with nick again at some point in the uh, in the future secondly i do think we have to start talking about the economics of this pandemic because it is catastrophic it is absolutely catastrophic how it's affecting people's livelihoods. And thirdly, I'm always very reluctant. As a graduate of Waterford School in Swaziland, I well remember a headmaster saying to us, you know what the definition of an expert is? An X is a has-been, and a spurt is a drip under pressure.
0: Alan Whiteside, uh, Nick Hudson. Thank you again for your participation today. It's been a a real privilege to be able to listen closely. I apologize to all of our community members. There were dozens of unanswered questions, uh, but hopefully we'll be able to package them in some way and and get back to you on that. Thank you for uh, your participation. Thanks for being with us with the um, Noontime Monday webinar. Uh, We've got Lots coming up, premium subscribers tomorrow. We've got an update of the BizNews Global Portfolio, which, by the way, we didn't panic on, and we actually bought more shares when the panic was happening, and my goodness, has that paid off. Uh, And then on Wednesday, we're looking at ways to invest in the U.S., with Orbvest, who uh, are specialists in the medical care center. And my goodness, if you want to put money into any area right now, it's got to be in medical properties. So lots coming up for the business community. Thank you again uh, to our esteemed guests who are well known to you. Perhaps you know them a little better after today's conversation. Until the next time, cheerio. Thank you for joining us for this webinar, which is compiled and produced by the team at biznews.com. A recording of this webinar will be available later today on the biznews.com channel on YouTube. From our team, until the next time, cheerio i doing things. <laughs>